0: This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I am your host, Sean Dustin. This morning, I have a very special guest. Her name is Madeline Black. And Madeline was a TEDx speaker, and that's where I came across her and her story. Uh, Her story is not for the, um, I guess you would say faint of heart, or, or, you know, I, I will have to give a trigger warning here, so if anybody out there um, you know, is triggered by, uh, some of the content that's going to be, uh, talked about in this episode, uh, feel free to take a moment, pull away from it if you have to, and, and, and get some self-care there. Uh, some of these images that might be put in your head, um, from this story could be, uh, uncomfortable for some of you, but, uh, I believe it's very important to, tell this story and, and, you know, let Madeline, you know, speak her truth, because I think this is way more common than, uh, we, than we know. So good morning, Madeline. How are you? I'm
1: good. Thank you. Thanks for being me on your
0: show. Well, thanks for coming out. Uh, please tell me about your, your story and the TEDx talk. That was a very, 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 uh, compelling and moving, um, speech that you gave. Uh, for that TED Talk. So, you know, how did that come to be? And, and, you know, just kind of run me through that if you could.
1: Well, it was always on my list of things I'd like to do. And it was on my second attempt, obviously, that I finally got into Glasgow, which is where I live and considered to be one of the top 10 TEDxes in Europe, which I didn't know. I spoke to an audience of over 2,000 people, which is quite hard to imagine now in these COVID times that we could ever do that again. It was, I have to say, one of the most terrifying moments but one of the most liberating moments of my life because my headache was called Unbroken Speaking the Unspeakable. So I have a story that I guess most people keep quiet about and they don't like to share, but I I can share it now. So I do. I feel like it's my duty to speak out, really for all those who can't find their voice yet.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I talk about some of my... Uh, uncomfortable things in my life that I've been through and my story. Uh, just last night, I'm, a, I'm in Toastmasters and, you know, I had to give my icebreaker speech last night and, uh, you know, it, it revolved around my past and who I am and who I became. And it's really, it's really crazy that a lot of people just, they're amazed at the honesty and, you know, just the forthcomingness when you speak your truth like that. It's not normal, I guess, for most people to, you know, to expose stuff like that about yourself, and the fact that you did, and and what you talked about, I mean, that is, I I I was kind of speechless. I, I had tears at, at at a few points in that. Um, it was just, it's unspeakable of what happened, and I have a three year old daughter, so I guess it's really um like on the forefront of my mind now because of the times that we're in and you hear all of these different uh you know things now about human trafficking and of the amount of children that go missing it's really scary out there
1: it is but you know i don't think my story is anything new i think sexual violence rape abuse has been around for many many years it's maybe now that we speak about it more we have more media coverage so people know about it and obviously, hashtag me too changed a lot. It helped people to sign their voice and to speak out as well. So sadly, my story of sexual violence is not uncommon. It is the story of many men, women, and children somewhere every day on this planet would experience what I did.
0: Yeah. And so for those of you that don't know, I mean, we were kind of dancing around the actual, like, what the TEDx was about. But, uh, Madeline was gang raped at 13 um, by two males that she didn't know, uh, you know, they came back from a bar. You would you would lie to your parents and, you know, well, maybe you you tell your story.
1: I did know one of them. One of them was a neighbor of a friend um, and lived in London at the time. And now in Scotland, they were both Americans. They were sons of diplomats just living in London for a couple of years. And as we said, my girlfriend and I did what most people did. We lied about our parents to our parents where we were going one night and we bought alcohol and I was a skinny little 13-year-old naive girl, never drunk before. And obviously I got drunk really quickly. And two of these men from our table, these young men, took us back to her mom's flat and it was empty because her mom was away. And it just became very clear, you know, really quickly, they weren't there to let me sleep off the alcohol and be good to you know, the Samaritan, they were there for something else. And what proceeded was then four to five hours of raping me every way that was the did.
0: That's horrible, man. And so part of that, that uh, the story that I, I heard is that when you finally got around to talking about this and you'd left a note on on your pillow and your mom had found it, and that was your way of kind of, like, letting them know what happened, they proceeded to do their own kind of investigation and asked your friend and everything else, and your friend lied about it and said that it never happened.
1: He said it didn't happen like they said it had happened. She said that they were nice boys and they just brought us home. Um, my dad still wanted to go to the police, but my mom was really quiet. I I, I thought my friend betrayed, and I couldn't understand. And it took me many, many years to also understand my mom's silence. But long after my dad had died, I'm one of five, and they were married for nearly 14 years. She told me that I was an eight-year-old girl. Sorry, a three-year-old, you don't want to hear this. But she had also been raped by a neighbor. So when I was confronting her with my story, all of her past was coming up to face her. Her trauma really silenced her because she had never spoken out about it yet. The man who did this to my mom was also raping his daughter, So he was sent to prison. She finds her voice. She told her brother, who told my grandparents. And then whilst he was in prison, my mom's family, they never spoke about it again. So in that moment, I thought, my friend has betrayed me and my mom didn't believe me. But it took me a long time to understand her silence. And I know as well, like many people, so many people keep it hidden because they're ashamed and ashamed. I know now the shame was never my shame. The shame was never my mom's shame. 100% of all rapes are caused by rapists, nothing else.
0: Yeah, that's horrible. I couldn't imagine. Imagine having to go through that and then, you know, nobody believing you or, you know, that's just, that's just crazy. Now, do you think that your friend didn't, say what had happened because possibly because they were diplomat sons you know they were powerful people or were you know she friends with them because that to me i come from the from the criminal world and you know the drug world and everything else and a lot that sounded an, an awful lot when you explained it like she may have had something to do with it or was trying to cover up for for them because they were friends i don't know it just didn't sound it was like
1: what You know what? I've never known. I used to drive myself crazy wanting to know. And what's the point? It's not going to change anything. If I get caught in my past, it doesn't lead me right here in my present moment. So I have stopped trying to work it out and, you know, trying to understand. I used to go out a few theories and these are the ones that stick with me. Maybe the same thing happened to her and she blanked it out like I did for many years. Or maybe nothing happened to her so she couldn't understand what I was saying. But really, I don't know and, you know, I can't get involved in ideas and meetings and, you know, conspiracy ideas because I'll never know. And I don't want to do that to my head anymore. It's in a good place.
0: Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, you've made your peace with it and you're able to talk about it now. You've done the TED Talk and I'm sure you've, you know, you've got uh, Instagram twitter uh youtube channel where you have your own show which is called uh actually the same unbroken it's pretty much the same thing right
1: it's called unbroken the podcast with madeline black i just started it literally on the 11th of the 11, 11 minutes past eleven, because i am on the 44 so that that way i could get my 44
0: in <laughs> yeah yeah right on um and so tell me a little bit about about that you know you you from what happened to you to the path that you've taken so far um you're a uh a, a, psych, a psychologist you're you know you've you've actually done pretty well for yourself in in that so it, explain to me a little bit about that and then your daughter as well that you have which kind
1: yeah i, I worked as a psychotherapist for a long time but i shared my story publicly in 2014 about six years ago with an organisation called the Forgiveness Project, because many years later I chose to forgive these two men, to really, for myself, nothing really to do with them, to set myself free. And from so there on it just you know, opened up so many doors I was invited to do TV interviews, radio, just to speak all across the world. Um, when I was deciding whether I should stay as a psychotherapist or a speaker, because I was being asked more and more, I said to myself, okay, I'd like a sign if I'm meant to be a speaker, then I'd love to work internationally. And I thought, well, that will never work. And literally on the 1st of January, 2019, I was invited to South Africa. And then on the 5th of January, I was invited to speak in the Maldives and I was sponsored by Unistat. And I thought, okay, that's that's a good sign. And I will take that sign. Thank you, life. So I put my energy into being a speaker and I stopped working as a psychotherapist. But obviously, COVID has come along, so my diary was quickly emptied along with most people in the events industry or speaker world. And so I thought, you know, I have had the privilege of meeting incredible people along my journey through the forgiveness project. I'm also a recipient in another project called the Global Resilience Project, where Emma Bell has taken 50 of us. She calls us Thrivals. And she's kind of researched what we do, and why we thrive. So there's all different stories, and it's fascinating This. Nine secrets to thriving, and we all do some of them. So I know all these amazing people, and I really believe in the power of sharing stories. You know, there's healing through storytelling. If somebody hears a story at the right time in their life, it can be transformative. So I thought, I've been a guest on many podcast shows, many, many, and I thought the idea just came to me. I could start my own one, and that's what I've done. So I launched it a month ago. We're now Friday will be episode 16. I've got 40 in the bank waiting to get published. I've been busy interviewing. I interview people that have had stories, I guess, of overcoming adversity. They've triumphed after tragedy, and they're really stories to heal, to motivate, and to inspire other people to show everybody really that we're not broken. None of us are broken beyond repair. People
0: that have gone through some of the hardest stuff in life tend to come out the other side either broken beyond repair. Or or they just thrive, like you're saying, and they, they don't allow that, uh, you know, they don't allow their, their, I guess you would say, their situation to, to be their conclusion.
1: Yep. Well, you know, I think I've been very lucky. I was born to raising parents. So what you don't know from the TEDx is that my father was a full of course survivor and he had all his family killed, his parents and brothers and sisters uh, in the Second World War and after and my mum also had her neck broken in an operation and was bedridden for a few years. But both of them, my mum healed herself. And my dad, he loved life. He mucked about. He met my mom, had five of us. Um, and he always said that life was for living. And not really what he said to me, but how he lived his life. I saw that, you know, well, if he can get past having his whole family murdered, surely I can get past one night. And I'm not saying it's easy. You know, this is taken a therapy and a ton of work and it's a process it's not a quick overnight fix it is a journey it's a it's a marathon not a sprint to recover from trauma but i saw once i had done all the work it, it came down to a choice i could choose to be caught by my past, or i could choose to just bring through it and live my life as well as i could it was kind of like my best revenge just refusing to be identified by what has happened so I, I used to see my dad, he's no longer here, laugh a lot and enjoy life. And I could never understand it. But now I see that was his strength, you know, to to go through that, the Holocaust, and to come out laughing and still love life it is such a gift.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, one of the things that I always have said, and I've been saying this a lot lately, is that uh, the the number one public safety issue should be untreated trauma.
1: Yeah, I do believe that hurt people hurt people. Through the Forgiveness Project, I've taken part in their program, which they called Restore, and we go into prisons. I've been into Peterborough Prison a couple of times, and we work with a group of prisoners we do on the male side and the female side, and it's really three to four days of intense personal development but with the use of storytelling, and I would say about 90% of the women I haven't worked with the men yet have been raped or abused. 90% of them have had trauma, but 95%. Pretty much everyone. And then you're going into that post environment, it's not gonna heal you, you know. It was the stories that we heard were just so shocking what they had to go through and live through. And then to be in that place, it was just heartbreaking to give hear them stories.
0: Yeah, a lot of I've talked to quite a few women in uh, the federal correctional system here. And what I've found is, you know, they were there for drug, drug crimes, but most of them are victims of the men that they're with. Yeah. And, you know, the men end up getting caught up in all of this stuff and then the women will go right along with them and end up having to do the time as well. But having been, you know, beaten, abused, uh, all of the things that go along with, with that kind of a life. And, uh, you know, it is kind of heartbreaking and it's heartbreaking to know that, Some of them have gotten like, you know, 15, 20, 30 year sentences. And their only crime was, is they got addicted to, you know, methamphetamine. And it was because of, well, maybe not because of, but it was, you know, fostered from the men and drug dealers that they were dealing with. So, yeah, I, I, it's, it's definitely a crazy way that, uh, life kind of unwinds. And one of the reasons why I wanted to, to talk to you back a year ago is I think I was uh, I was remembering when I lived in uh, in Las Vegas. And I remember we lived in this uh, this. I would say we lived in this neighborhood that had block like parties all the time. Right. And so, you know, you'd have people that had swimming pools and the kids are just running back and forth between houses and really no supervision. You know, their parents aren't around. Um, they may be over at another neighbor's house drinking, and it's like a lot of inappropriate stuff would go on, like you know, you would see if if a neighbor had gotten drunk, you would see you know, some weird kind of stuff. and people don't know or kind of understand what causes uh, trauma, you know, and an unwanted gesture or maybe an inappropriate touch, uh, from, from an adult. I mean, it, it, all of that can, can cause a trauma or, or, you know, something, something, uh, PTSD like. And when people think about PTSD, what PTSD is, in my opinion, and it, it is that trigger that gives you the anxiety of of bringing you back to that particular point in time that scarred you to begin with,
1: and it's re-triggering really going through that, so it's re-traumatizing really you every time until you finally walk through PTSD. And I lived years not even knowing that I had it, but once I realized it, made perfect sense why I behaved and responded to lots of things in the way that I did.
0: So with your own PTSD, and I know that I've done this myself. Um, and, and when it's not treated, you're actually infecting the people around you and causing them to have the same kind of PTSD that you have. Maybe not in the same way, but you're...
1: No, I, I was very good at covering it up. Wow. I, I wore a masks, mask, tending to be the best mother, the best partner, the best phone maker. But underneath, I was shit scared all the time. I was fearful of everything. And I was very clever at avoiding things. You know, if I went out... I never went in that taxi and never went on public transport. I always drove, you know, simple things. I was always, I wouldn't drink, so I could always drive everyone home. Never went out in the dark. That's easy to avoid. You know, you just get clever across the road. There was a guy walking behind me. People wouldn't weren't really aware, but I was always on hyper alert. I was always hypersensitive to every situation. checking out a room when I walked in, you know, getting a sense, is it feels safe in here? Does it not feel safe? So it was really around my safety. Being out control and being around men, these were the three things that really really got me hyper. lot.
0: Hmm, makes sense. And that I mean, I, I totally get that. Uh with with me it was, you know, my, my anger and everything else that that just affected everybody around me, including my dog. You know, my dog when my when my octaves start to raise even now, my dog will bolt, gone, and go hide. Not that I would beat the dog up, but it's just that that, they would know. uh Oh, here it comes. I better get out of here.
1: Nobody really likes to sit with someone that's angry. It's like shooting arrows at someone, really isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's
0: a good. That's a good analogy. Yeah, I, I guess you. You're right. It is. Um, but I mean, it's you know, you have to work on things. You know, we don't just because you know you you acknowledge that this is, or just because I acknowledge that. Oh yeah, I have this issue that I need to work on. If you're not working on it, the issue just stays there and you just, you know, you're just somebody that talks about working on issues and never really works on them.
1: And you also have to see what you're doing. So a long time, you know, because so I've worked as a psychotherapist for years, a long time people don't see it there. Right? You know, until we really pay attention to what we're doing, only then can we really work it. I'm not angry. I don't know what you know. Yet we've played it quite. I'm not angry. So. <laughs> If you go see it, if you're you know blinkered or blinded by it and you're not accepting you're in denial, it's hard. So you really have to wake up to what you're
0: doing. Yeah, being a person is definitely difficult. Yeah.
1: You know? It's a tricky this thing called human and yes, humanity being life is a predicament way, isn't it? It's uh, tricky.
0: It is, because I mean a lot of the stuff that we we've learned, I mean, you've got the shadow self, you know, you've got the projection. You know, it's like usually when I run across people that I don't like, it's okay. Well, it's not that I don't like them; it's that I don't like what they do that I recognize in myself that I don't like.
1: Well, there is that. Well, you could also have good instinct. It could also be your gut telling you to stay away. You could just be feeding off their energy. Yeah, your gut. Not it's not always projection just to confuse you. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But I mean, these are things that you have to be aware of, and if you're not aware of them, and you don't understand kind of how the mind works, and and you know, oh, okay, well, let me take a look back at that, and and, and you got to go back to your own like sort of uh, garage and start tinkering with with you know what things are, and am I seeing this in the right way, and you know, it's just it's just very confusing.
1: But what's good is you've got a very inquiring mind, so you're asking lots of questions. So never stop asking questions.
0: Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I do have, I am pretty inquisitive and very curious. I mean, I I wish more people were curious. Maybe we wouldn't be in a lot of the situations that we are around the world. If more people that, you know, were in involved in, I guess you would say empire, like the UK is an empire, the, the, you know, uh, the United States is an empire. You know, if you start being more curious about what your, your countries are doing in the name of, of your country, maybe we wouldn't have things like that are happening in Syria and all these other places. Uh, but that's a different show. And yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, so anyways, let's, uh, one of your big realizations that I got from the, uh, from the Ted talk was when you, your daughters, when they started becoming the the age that you were, um, when, you know, the the trauma happened to you, um, you really,
1: We didn't all become the same age at the same time. It was the first one. We became 13 births. And that really triggered me. You know, I, like I said, I put this mask on. I went to college to do psychotherapy and I thought I was healed because I thought I wouldn't become a mum. I thought giving birth was going to be like being raped again. But as you know, I have three daughters. So I thought that was it. I've healed. I'm good. I went to college, did psychotherapy, tons of personal development, tons of, you know, therapeutic situations where we role played. And obviously, whatever you you hadn't resolved is going to come up. And it really shocked me that these memories returned because I thought I was good. And I'd worked with Women's age for 14 years, rape crisis for six years. I knew about disassociation and numbing and avoidance. But when it happens to yourself, it's very hard to take that on board. So all these memories came back and I thought I'd made it up. I thought it couldn't be that bad. I would remember it really since it was that bad. So I went to therapy and I said, I want you to take these memories away. I don't want to see them anymore. You know, they're rubbish. And he kind of obviously laughed because you can't take memories away. They come up, whether we believe it or not, when we are ready to face them. And I decided that I don't want this hanging over my head for the rest of my life. You know, this is going to be a a rain cloud. This bad weather is going to follow me everywhere if I don't deal with it. But that dealing with it took another three years because I just was caught in denying and denying and denying. But I realized that, that was my shame. I thought if anybody knew what had happened to me, they wouldn't want to know me. They would look at me differently. They would be disgusted. You know, they would see me very differently. Um, and that was my fear and my shame speaking to me. And once I really did the very thing that I thought I couldn't do, which was stepping into the shadows, those dark chapters of our lives that we avoid and distract and deny that's when the real alchemy, that's when the real work happened because you've got to feel to heal. I had to go into it to really get out of it. And, yeah, stepping into those most difficult places that I had avoided for years was really what helped me. And I realized, actually, I didn't forget it. I just didn't want to remember it. It's quite different. Hmm.
0: That's a good point, man. Yeah, it's uh, now... Uh, you know fear is false evidence appearing real and we get caught up in 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 fear quite a bit
1: we face anything and rise and that's what i decided i've been doing false evidence here and i thought no i'm gonna do the other one there had been my friend for years so i didn't know what i was doing but when i look back now i did my own kind of exposure therapy i decided to break up with fear i didn't want to be friends with fear anymore and i put myself into situations that would have terrified me normally. Um, and I started to see fear is an illusion. You know, fear was part of my imagination. Everything was based on what had already happened to me, or based on what could happen to me. If I looked at right here, right now, in this moment, I was okay. Nothing was happening to me. And that really helped to calm my mind up. You know, our mind is a weird thing because we can't cut it in half. You know, it doesn't bleed. What, what is our mind really? And for a long time, I guess it protected me by numbing all these memories out. But then it still fed me fear and it still fed me shame. So I couldn't listen to my mind. I had to listen to my body, really. Uh, and that, that really helped. Once I turned my back on my mind and just thought, no, I'm not going to do fear anymore. I don't, it's like an old program on my mind mag. I need to upgrade to the latest uh, package. It was out of date. All these old habits and behaviors and patterns. So, yeah, I broke up with fear big time.
0: That's all, that's amazing. Um, so with your therapy that you you went to, did you ever do any um uh, like go under what do they call that uh, hip hypnosis to try to bring back some of the memories, or did you just
1: if you name it, I was we tried it. So when I was in therapy the last time, for these three years and I struggled to believe what was happening. I thought I'd made it up, that I was bringing back other women's memories with me. Um, My therapist suggested going for some therapeutic massage, which I hadn't really heard of. And the very first time I went, I lay on the massage couch, and I could hear this person screaming and shouting and kicking and fighting with the therapist. And I thought, who is making all that noise? And then I realized it was coming from me. (laughs) And that's when I thought, you know, I... I'm a Christian woman. we don't like to make a fuss or to make a noise, you know, I wouldn't behave like that. And I thought, God, that has to be coming from somewhere deep inside of me, this trauma that was held in my cells, held in my body, because the body remembers what happens, which is why we get triggered, you know, physiologically, we feel it, we shake, we feel sick, we get hot and cold, our heart feels it's a, a physiological response. And so that then sent me on a path of trying loads of other, I guess you would call it, alternative therapies. So I did have hypnosis many years ago to help me get over the fear of childbirth and I did get some memories back but then I was also concerned how do I know those were real memories because you know I was under hypnosis I didn't trust my mind again I was doing that of of acceptance and so I've tried everything I've done about 60 sweat lodges I've taken San Pedro which is like modern medicine a bit like ayahuasca Mm -hmm. I've walked on fire I've done transformational breath work I've done uh, dance therapy, drumming uh, loads of different stuff uh, cranial sacral therapy uh, and lots of talking therapy but collectively they all kind of worked really uh, I guess for me my main journey has been, even though I didn't want them was getting my memories back and getting back into my body because on that night as I said in the 10x I left the scene of the crime You know, I floated out of my body, I had an out of body experience because I was very close to being killed that night and a lot of my life, I never felt back in, you know, I never felt grounded and all whole. I was like this house that I was renting, which had no furniture and I was an unfurnished house, so to speak. So I, I really did whatever I could to get grounded again and get back into my body. So a lot of that also has been through sports. So I used to run every day, but I realized I was running on empty. I wasn't in my legs, which was a shame because I was great at running long distance. But at forty one I went to karate, which terrified me, but I still go there now. Windsurfing, which I hated because I was so out of control, but I still windsurf. And I'm a weight up because you cannot deadlift twice your body weight unless you are in your feet, in your core, in your thighs, in your breath. So all of these things collectively have all helped me to ground me, get me back into my body, I guess, be present and accept what had happened because in the denial of acceptance, I was driving myself crazy. I just refused to believe this was happening. And I, after one, I saw, you know, it's not the pictures that is, is the problem here. It's I am the problem. My refusal to accept what took place that night was actually going to give my brain more issues than what the trauma did. I was had the chance to drive myself crazy if I didn't stop what I was doing. Yeah. That makes sense.
0: <laughs> no, that makes absolute sense. I, I know, I know what you're talking about. And sometimes when you realize that, you know, looking outside of yourself for the answers, or you know, blaming outside sources for whatever the issues are, um, you know, and, and coming to the realization that you know, the common denominator in all of my problems is me, and. I'm the one that's probably the problem and it's not everybody else. And so that realization in itself is very powerful because then you start to look to you to, to like, I would start to look to me before I look to anywhere else. All right. Well, let me, let me, let me, let me stop and, and and see what my part in this is because before I go and start trying to point fingers at anyone else, uh, you know uh, let me see where where i'm at in this and most of the time i found that i didn't have to go very much further than me to find what the problem was <laughs> you know
1: i just needed to get out of the way of myself but i just had to accept and stop i was taking a battle with myself once i put down my weapons of denial and refusal to accept and avoidance and i i chose acceptance which really where the forgiveness came in with understanding that it was so much easier. It was being you. I could just let go of all. whole, but get that will, that strong within side, refusing to exert that. That was a tough one to walk through. That took a lot, a lot of time to crack. It really did.
0: Well, I'm glad you did because what came out of that is amazing. And you know, the path and, and the speaking and everything else that you're doing is amazing. And you're helping a lot of people, whether you know it or not. Um, so I want to pivot just a little bit because you'd mentioned something uh, towards, you know, uh, when you were in in your path of different uh, modalities that you were trying to to get through this and you uh, kind of sparked something. And I was like, oh, really? I want to know a little bit more about that.
1: When are you going to pick up my guess good with it?
0: Yeah. Uh, the ayahuasca.
1: You're going to ask me that. Yeah. I've done i done because ayahuasca uh, renders you statusless. And because I was still very fearful of what anyone could do to me if I was being out of control, I went for a slightly gentler one, which was still pretty hardcore, called San Pedro. Mm-hmm. And it's still a plant medicine. It's still taken by the shamans in Peru, but I did it in the Highlands of Scotland. And I've taken it five or 6 times, and it's like a 3-4 to four day retreat. You kind of uh, go on a fast, so you don't really eat much, and we, we take the plant medicine in the morning about 11 and it lasts the feelings of it maybe for a good eight hours and every evening we would have a sweat lot which just blows it up even more but for me what it really did because it would do something different for everybody it stripped me of all my conditioning so it just left me with what is and when I was left with what is I couldn't deny and I was watching these people because there was a group of about 10 or 15 of us it was a grim retreat. And the guy's climbing tree and he's swimming naked in the river, loving life, and the women were dancing and I was curled up in this ball, crying my eyes out, traumatized, and I was like, fuck it's not And I was enjoying life and I'm traumatized every time. But again I saw I was still running from it emotionally, I was still trying to shut everything that was coming in, so it was a big pressure. And the very last time I took it, which is I've never taken it since, I said to myself, Okay, I'm I sat by the river by myself, and I said, show me everything that happened to me. Just show me the show. And I sat as steady as I could, and I watched from the start to the end of everything they did to me. And I I cried buckets for that 13-year-old girl. And then I thought, you know, I am not my body. I'm not what they did to me. This was a crime committed against my body. It was nothing to do with me. It was just wrong place, wrong time. And if I don't accept this now, I like I said, I was gonna drive myself mad. So for me, the San Pedro was very tough. It's really not for the faint-hearted, but it was so powerful. It was amazing plant medicine. But yeah, it's not legal in this country. I don't know about maybe in California, it might be more legal because you have different laws to us. But uh, it it really helped me tremendously.
0: No, I don't think it's legal here. Anything that helps you is not legal anywhere.
1: Um, and I guess I of like people say it's like a psychedelic drug. So also what it did, because we're out in nature up in the highlands, you feel whether this happens or not, you know, you feel all the vibrations. So I was cleaning the earth under my feet. I could speak to the sheep with my mind. I was talking to the trees. I just blended into nature. And at the end of the day, we really are nature. You know, when it's we are all conditionings, I just became one i guess with my outdoor life my indoor life it was it was pretty transformative yeah it was quite amazing
0: yeah i'm i'm a fan i'm a fan of any kind of uh you know psychedelic uh work and especially now i mean it's uh they're starting to see especially with psilocybin that uh you know mushroom the magic mushrooms are very uh very helpful in a lot of different ways, you know, from people that are getting ready to transition to, you know, to dying, you know, people that are terminal, uh, they've given it to them and it's really calmed them into, okay, well, I'm not afraid of death anymore. It's, you know, we, we, and I, I've taken, I've taken mushrooms. I've taken them not too long ago. I've, I've, uh, microdosed um, with them instead of using, uh, like, I don't know, uh, what do they call it? Like, ssris what would those be like uh zoloft and some of these other medicines like that instead of taking those i i started myself on a, a regimen of uh micro which is like three tenths of a gram of uh ground ups
1: don't seem that we sort. <laughs> yeah yes yeah. well, the foulest tasting thing i've ever drunk in my life It was just really revolting but you know very quickly i've i i builds it in my system really quickly. Normally it takes a little while for it to build up, but straight away it's just, whoa. Yeah, cows and stuff. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I Yeah, I'm an advocate. I'm an advocate. Anything that's plant based, you know, and and you know has a, a medicinal value um to help us, you know, see some of the things that we can't see. And it's a, I, I really it's I have one that I need to go on as well. I, I uh, they call it a hero a hero dose of uh, of psilocybin. I have one sitting in my in my cabinet waiting to go, and when I get to a spot where I can be in nature and and the time is right, I'll do it, and I can't wait because I mean I'm scared. It's a scary thing because you don't know what's in there, you know. It, it's uh, when I think about it, what's in my mind.
1: We say we don't know, but everything that came up was never a surprise. <laughs> it's painful. I'm not saying it was it was a laugh, but it nothing was ever really a surprise. So we do really know. We yeah. kind of commit ourselves we don't know, but actually we always do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Huh, maybe that's what I'm afraid of is that I know and I just don't want to deal with it.
1: Right. basically, I think, you know, like I said, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Healing is, is not a linear path, it's not a straight path, it's ups and downs and all over the place. But eventually you can get to a place where you're really okay and really settled with it. You know, I couldn't speak out about rape sexual violence if I wasn't okay
0: yeah yeah well I want to thank you thank you for everything that you're doing and everything that you do uh we're at about 40 minutes here so why don't you go ahead and uh, plug your podcast your book uh anything that you want to appear in the show notes and uh that's the time for this right now
1: well my memoir is called Unbroken, and my podcast is called unbroken the podcast with madeleine black which has just started, so obviously if you'd like to listen in, I'd be delighted. You can find me at our website, madelineblack.co.uk, and on all the social media channels as well.
0: Awesome. Well, like, I want to thank you again. I can't say enough about what you're doing and the amazing amount of strength that you show and courage for sharing your story and, you know, your strength and your weakness as well, you know. It, uh, all of that encompasses who we are and weakness sometimes isn't weakness. It's a strength, you know, and I think that you're a very strong and powerful woman. Your voice is amazing. And all of the things that I've watched on you so far, I've been very touched. So I want to thank you for coming on my show and sharing with the listeners, your story and your strength.
1: Uh, thank you so much. And if anyone is listening, I would just say It's never too late to find your voice and get support.